Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. We are continuing our four-part series on the theology of the body today. This is episode two, and we're going to talk some more about this, this idea of union and what it means that the human person is uniquely shaped for union. I'm joined once again by Connor and Patricia Delara Smith and Bill Donahue from the Theology of the Body Institute. So they're going to help me unpack some of these ideas. And guys, welcome, welcome to Creedal Catholic once again. It's good to be back, Zach. Thank you. Thanks so much, Zach. Yeah, glad to be here. I'm going to read the, the, uh, these audience summaries, one sentence summaries from each of the first four audiences. And I have Patricia to thank for this. She, when we were going back and forth over email, kind of planning out these episodes, Patricia said, here are some one sentence, one sentence summaries for some of the audiences. And I took those and said, you know, let me group these together. These look pretty good. Let's talk about these, et cetera. So today we're talking about audiences one through four. And I'm going to read the one sentence summaries that are Patricia's summaries. And then I'm going to uh, throw a question out and I'll, I'll throw it to Patricia first since these are her paraphrases anyway. Um, all right. So the audience summaries. Number one, we are and always have been uniquely shaped for union. Number two, we are bodily like animals and godly. Number three, Christ appeals to the beginning, man's primeval innocence on points one and two in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10. And number four, our experience and our bodies tell all of us that this was all our beginning. Okay, so let's go to that first one again. We are and always have been uniquely shaped for union. Patricia, what does it mean to be uniquely shaped for union? Yes, so our bodies are explicitly male or explicitly female. Um, when we weren't, when we come to life, when we are born into this world, um, we each have our own bodies and biologically male and female joined together to continue the human race and creation of further bodies that are gifts uh, that I mentioned in, in our first episode. And so that on the very basic level is what I, um, I guess, the simple way of phrasing or explaining that sentence. But I would also say that apart from this our unique characteristics or personalities as a man or as a woman also shape our relationships and our attraction to human beings or as to humans as social beings. Now, a question for the group here. When John Paul II is saying that we are uniquely shaped for union, is that strictly about sexual union? I mean, we've already established in the introductory episode, and I appreciate you mentioning that, Patricia. I forgot to mention there is an introductory episode. If, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the first one, I recommend you go back because we do a good overview. And by we, I mean my three guests here <laughs> do a good overview of the theology of the body and what it means um, and how it's not just about sex. But in this context, uh, Patricia, you were mentioning the, you know, in the beginning, God made the male and female. Um, should we think about union only in the sense of conjugal union? Or does it also mean that Every person, you know, in, in, to use the language of Aristotle, every person is a social animal. And so every person is made for union, regardless of whether or not he or she will ever be married. And Bill, I think I saw you had a hand up there. Yeah, this is uh, one of the beautiful things about the theology of the body that I love, that it's always expansive. It's always more than. It's always also both and a very Catholic principle, right? <laughs> Human and divine. So instantly, of course, a quote, when you asked that question, Zach, a quote came right up. This is from a wonderful letter from, uh, it's a Vatican plenary assembly, I believe, on the collaboration of men and women in the church from 2004. It's really, really good. And he, here's the line. Above all, the fact that human beings are persons needs to be underscored. Man is a person, man and woman equally so, since both were created in the image and likeness of the personal God. Their equal dignity as persons is realized as physical, psychological, 
ontological complementarity. And ontology is that study of being. So in our core, in our being, we have complementarity. Physical, psychological, and ontological complementarity. And then it goes on, giving rise to a harmonious relationship of uni-duality. It's a great word that they just made up literally on the spot, I think. I love when they just make up words. <laughs> so uni-duality, um, it, it's expansive. Yes, we have physical complementarity as male and female, but it, it, it's deeper. It's more than. And, you know, for the person who is celibate or single, this is the entry point also. I'm part of this dance. The male-female is a, is a kind of a sign pointing to a masculine-feminine reality that's even bigger than the biological. And we'll get into this as we go, I think, but uh, God's saying something in the complementarity of male and female, and it's not just a physical thing. It's this giving and receiving that's at the core of gift. Bill, when you're saying that, it makes me think of those in religious life who are obviously not married, right? You have um, consecrated women, uh, I guess consecrated women are technically lay, but um, I think that the the this still applies. You have uh, women who are religious sisters and cloistered nuns. You have men who are brothers, monks, and priests. And although they are not married, they are still participating in this complementar complementarity. Uh, there is a a major feminine dimension to the mission of religious sisters, orders of women, and obviously a masculine dimension to uh, orders of men. Uh, and so I like what you're saying there about that. This is not just about marriage. This is about sexuality. Going back to your comments in the first episode, Bill, but this is not about sexual intercourse. This is about our sexuality as human beings who are made in the image of God. That's right. In a certain sense, it's not, it's not just about marriage, but it's all about marriage. <laughs> marriage that's more expansive. Marriage that is the, the theme song running throughout the entire Bible. This, this idea that ultimately in the end, and we see this throughout, God wants to marry us. He wants to, so everything we're seeing in complementarity and union is a sign pointing to the divine wedding feast, like what's coming in heaven. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, that's what I, you know, quoting Bishop Fulton Sheen in the last episode, it's a divine romance. Religion is meant to be more of a romance than just following rules. This is what one of the gifts of TOB is bringing to a, to our understanding today. I completely agree. Um, so Bill was saying that throughout the Bible, we see Old Testament, New Testament, this idea of covenant with God and that marriage with God, um, but then also with Christ, whose bride is the church. Everyone is supposed to mirror that and that we're called to that. And definitely, no matter whether it's an actual, in espousal, union in marriage, but also then in our relationship with our communities, um, with our families. So it can be single, it can be with their, um, I guess what we, we mentioned cloistered nuns as an example or monks. Yeah. And I would say, um, to, to let this reality be known in something maybe a little bit more personal, uh, we kind of talked about the last episode at the end about what things are we trying to avoid. And so if you look at some of the things that we as a society and, and personally the temptations to try to avoid, right? We try to avoid, you know, instability, insecurity, and all these things. And and that kind of I, I think really proves the point about how we are relational creatures made for union because we do depend on each other. And I think now we kind of tend to see that as as not necessarily a positive thing. Um, but the fact that that is the reality, I think, lends credence to 
JP2's interpretation about you know who we are and you know what we ought to do and where we're where we should be going. And I like JP2's genius in starting the theology of the body with this audience because being made for union is something that you don't need to even be a theist to recognize, right? I mean, I think it, it is evident from our experience that we are made for union. Almost every single one of us grows up wanting friends and wanting to be in a family and wanting to have a close relationship with parents and siblings, et cetera. So the fact that we're made for that is, I would say, almost self-evident, if not entirely self-evident, right? I mean, I think of Aristotle's language that we are social animals. This has been evident even to the ancients that we were made for for union or at the very least relationship with each other. So I like his genius in starting that, uh, starting his his work that way. To go on to our second audience, the second audience is we are bodily like animals and godly. And I think my question for you guys is, how do we distinguish between the unique, uh, the uniquely made for union characteristic of the human person when we look at animals and animals also run in packs, right? And animals have families, right? So we have bodies like animals, but we are also godly. I think of the philosopher Gilbert Mylander who says he has a book, I think, neither beast nor God. And that's, that's man, right? Because we sit, we, we, we sit between God. We're not, uh, we are not uh, all holy and the first cause like God is. Uh, we are made in his image, but we're also not just simple bodies like the animals are. So neither beast nor God. So um, how are we different from, from animals in being made for union like that? Bill, I'll, I'll throw this to you. Sure. Um, we, we mentioned communion, the word communion and the communion of persons before. And this is who God is. John Paul II writes that God's not a solitude. God is a family. And so in creation, God, like God makes a visible, touchable, smellable world that we're immersed in. And it's meant to be um, parabolic. It's a parable. Everything is a parable. Pope Benedict once wrote, um, this was uh, on the Feast of the Holy Trinity. We see the great dance of um, the Trinity all the way down at the subatomic level in the dance of proton, neutron, electron, swirling all the way up through creation, communion, communion, through the, 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 the plants, through the animal kingdoms. We see this kind of complementarity or giving and receiving that makes life. Then we're the crown of creation as male and female, and, and we're the image of God that is communion. So it's this awesome spiral that goes all the way up from that subatomic level, all the way up. It's all in relationship, always in relationship. And... So as we look as human beings, crown of creation, as we look down, we see the lessons written, just as the, you know, the ancients, the medievals used to see in the cathedrals, you know, they would see the truths of God in stone, in glass. We see it in the created world, we, and then we give voice to it. You know, we form communion by gift of self to, to point all the way up to God. Uh, it really, there's such a beauty to it. And here's where John Paul II uses this gift of phenomenology. Phenomenology is sort of the science of experience. Like I can come to know by my experience. As he said, this is like, it's self-evident. I see it. I feel it in me. I long for communion and revelation in the word of God shows us this is what we are, what we're made for. Yeah. So I completely agree with Bill. I was just going to take a, I guess a little bit of a, of a step back, but then continue on the, the same lines where I, to answer Zach's question is we are both, entirely physical and entirely spiritual and our bodies and our souls define us equally and we really can't understand one without the other 
And so the the difference from the animals, I think that w- that Bill's hard to get into more, is that I completely agree that we are made in the image and likeness of God, the family, the Trinity, and this is in both physical and spiritual ways in our bodies and our need for com- for communion or physical community. Um, but then also, um, as I mentioned in the first episode, kind of with our ability to be aware of this and the freedom that God gives us and the choice, I think that is a difference from the animals. Um, and then all of this is really exemplified, and maybe I'm getting ahead, but <laughs> it's really what we're looking to, the, exemplified by the incarnation where Christ is both entirely human, physical, and also divine, spiritual. Yeah, and in fact, just recently on the on January 1st, I released an episode, or maybe I released it on the 31st, but for Mary, Mother of God, I released an episode uh, talking about the Christological heresy that was condemned at Ephesus, um, primarily by Cyril of Alexandria, uh, and, and he was very intent on the title of Theotokos because of what it said about the incarnation and how Jesus was... Uh, was one person, two natures, fully man and fully God. Um, and so I like your point about the incarnation, that that the incarnation teaches us that about ourselves. Are we embodied souls or are we ensouled bodies? Are, are we union of body and soul? And how should we think about that dynamic, that interplay? Because I think that, if anything, is maybe the most pithy way that I can think of to, to distinguish us between the beasts, the animals that are bodily. Yeah, I love you, what you just said, Zach, actually would be a way of saying it. And you can say them both. We are ensouled bodies and embodied souls. We, we say body and soul. John Paul defines us as a composite of spirit and matter. Um, we're best defined as saying we're a marriage. We are the marriage. St. Augustine, you know, 1,600 years ago, Augustine talked about the body-soul relationship as saying, your body is your wife, he said, your body is your wife. It's an amazing, body and soul are like in, in a kind of a marriage, a spousal connection that cannot be separated. What do we call the separation of body and soul? Death. And God always intended that to be a marriage, right? So he comes to restore it. And so in heaven, and we say this every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body. This holy marriage will, will be made complete in heaven, the glorification of the body. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a marriage, and it's what's astounding and I think astounds the angels is the fact that God would create a universe this way, that, that we would be, you know, we the stuff of stars, you know, we carbon-based beings, <laughs> we, would take, we would be the summation of all creation, and then we enter through the portal of the Word made flesh into eternity. It's astounding to the angels and infuriating to the demons. This is the point in which Lucifer falls, right? That, that God would lower himself all the way down and take up matter. Uh, it's an amazing thing. C.S. Lewis talks about the idea that, you know, God, God descends so far to lift us up so high. That, you know, he, Lewis says in The Four Loves, you know, blood and guts and glands, these aren't offensive to God. He, he enters in. He loves matter. He made it in order to lift it up. Um, and that's the marriage. And Jesus is the marriage of heaven and earth. Jesus embodied for all eternity. The word is made flesh, not for a certain period of time. He will always be the holy marriage of divinity and humanity. I mean, wow. Right. Hit pause. Go make a holy hour and come back and listen to the rest of this episode, because that is an astounding point. 
Yeah, I love that. And your your point about Augustine is saying that your your uh, body is like your wife. I mean, that's that's scriptural too. All right? I think of uh, Ephesians five when Paul says that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Or I think of um, I think it's First Corinthians six when. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but sexual immorality is a sin against his own body. Uh, and I think that underscores Augustine's point about how our bodies, I mean, they're not just these, um, these, not just these mortal coils we inhabit, right? This is something more. And, and I think going to the, the point about the, about destiny that you mentioned last episode, Bill, our destiny that we are destined for resurrection tells us something immense about our bodies because, and we'll talk about this in later episodes, I think, uh, unlike the dualists, unlike the Gnostics who teach that the body is evil and that the spiritual element of us is good. So Patricia, like you were saying, fully spiritual, fully physical, simultaneously, just like Christ was fully divine, fully man. Um, we are that. And so we cannot reject our bodies as bad. Our bodies can do bad things. We can do bad things through our bodies, but our bodies are not bad. Uh, and the resurrection teaches us that. Real quick, Zach, a point. Um, you mentioned the Gnostics, the Dualists, the Manichaeans, which we can sometimes think, yeah, way back in the day. You referenced transhumanism before. Ray Kurzweil talks about, the, he's a transhumanist, this idea that we need to upgrade, be upgraded from our biological limitations. It's, you know, Fulton called it old errors, new labels. It's the same Gnostic Manichaeanism that we encountered in the beginning of the church's history. Yeah, great point. And I, I like the, uh, I haven't heard that from Fulton Sheen, the old errors, new labels, but it's so true because if you look at what the church has dealt with for literally millennia now, uh, we see the same things just being, just being repackaged, right? The danger is that they can be repackaged in more seductive ways. Uh, and I think this is in, in large part, the work of the evil one, right? Like, he failed this point to get the church to go after this heresy. So let's repackage it this way and we'll, we'll, we'll present it this way and we'll try to seduce them that way. Um, but I think you're absolutely right, Bill. Let's, let's go back to the creation narrative and talk about what scripture tells us about these points. So we have the garden of Eden, the creation narrative, which I think, um, I think the catechism says uh, that the, the first uh, few chapters there use figurative language to describe a primeval event. Um, so the point there is that these, this narrative is true. This narrative tells us true things about the human person, regardless of whether or not there you know, was an actual, uh, a, an actual snake, uh, you know, uh, an actual tree living in the garden there, et cetera. These are, this is figurative language to describe it, to affirm a primeval event. So, with that in mind, that this is not just a fairy tale about our origins, what does the creation narrative tell us about our identity as human persons? Patricia, I'll start with you. Yes, yeah, sure. <clears throat> so it, it's actually going to reaffirm a lot of the points you've been speaking about now because I'll, I'll just, I think it's really important to restate them because I said going forward, this is the, the basis for everything in theology of the body, but definitely that humans are good and are uniquely made in God's image and likeness. And we have that very special relationship with God. Um, humans are made for union as God created man and wife and to, or man and woman and to be together. Um, and the union of humans is good and is a fulfillment. I think that is the basis. Um, and I, I think we can keep talking about this, of course. Um, and, and we can maybe go into the, I guess the, the fall narrative, which is a little bit separate, but I did want to mention because it's, it's not 
um, it's an important thing that can be easily overlooked. Um, but because of the fact of the fall of creation, um, there I wanted to acknowledge that there are anomalies or conditions that may confuse or maybe aren't acknowledged as much where people aren't necessarily, um, I guess, I guess biologically male or female, and that may signify otherwise. But I still wanted to say that this does not reduce or diminish the fact of these um, very important principles in theology of the body that all of these people, male, female, or maybe if there's a condition where they're not necessarily one or the other, we're all still gifts. We all still have the dignity of being image and likeness of God. And yeah, I think that's the basis of it. Yeah, great point. I'm actually glad you brought that up, Patricia, because I was going to ask that um, a few minutes ago and just totally forgot. Um, but I think what you're talking about is uh, intersex individuals who are born with um, male and female sexual organs or um, parts of one, perhaps. Um, and so maybe I'll, I'll throw this question to Bill now and just kind of change course a little bit. But what is the response to that, right? Because what we're saying and what John Paul II is saying is, look, we are male and female. God made us that way. Uh, someone who's intersex, and I really appreciate, again, Patricia, for bringing this up, might say, well, I'm not that way, right? And so uh, so I guess, number one, like, how do I accept this personally on a personal level? And two, um, doesn't this sort of bring the whole edifice crashing down if it is not actually the case that that God made them male and female? Yeah, this is a, first off, start with um, the sensitivity of this issue for individuals that are that are intersex. And true intersex of being born with both genitalia, it's a 0.075%, I think, of the population, so it's a very small number. Um, but it is it is something that happens. We would identify this as an abnormality, not a norm, um, but we would meet with sensitivity and compassion, right? Anybody, this is also in the catechism, anyone with same deep-seated same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, is to be met with compassion, respect, and sensitivity. And to feel that pain that, that hits us at our core. Um, however, there, that would be sort of the external manifestation of genitalia. What should be done in the case of an intersex birth is that, you know, the trillions of somatic cells that are in our bodies reveal the XX or XY. Um, there might be an XXY. If the Y is present, then there's, then there's maleness. A, and a, a surgery can be performed to match what is stamped in the trillions of somatic cells in the person. You can identify as male or female um, by that route. Um, but the call there, I think, for the intersex individual is, is to go back and to go deep into the mystery because you're still part of this great dance of complementarity. You are as person. The mystics and the saints tell us, you know, in relation to God, we're actually all feminine. We, we identify as the receivers of the gift of the Father, the gift of the bridegroom in Christ, and so are called to birth forth divine life. Right, so you can't, for an individual to say, I'm, I'm because I have this abnormality, or, or I just, I'm non-binary, I don't identify with either. This is a sad thing, and there's a wound underneath there, right? Deep hunger, uh, mother hunger, or father hunger, there's a wound. If we identify, if we don't identify, we are literally a, a, a homeless from our own bodies, and we end up kind of haunting the world, looking for a place to land, we don't have a body. You are a body. This is a key principle in theology of the body. 
you don't have a body, whatever that body is, um, you are that body. And if there's a wound, if there's an abnormality, there's a call to healing and a recognition that, that we are in historical realm. We are in the rupture. This is the fall. Thorns and thistles grew, right? They're suffering and death. This is not the end. So to anyone listening who may be uh, in this state or know someone, this is not the end. The redemption of the body is coming. Notice that, like, Scripture speaks of the redemption of the body. And in heaven, there'll be that complete redemption in the resurrection of the body. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And thanks for your sensitivity and compassion in talking about that, because I think that needs to be number one, right? Um, Christ regarded everyone who came to him with blindness, lameness, uh, et cetera, with, with complete compassion and love. And I think that needs to be the first response. You know, I, I would also say that, that your point about you know, individuals who identify in certain ways, uh, uh, you know, who identify as non-binary or who say that, that they have gender dysphoria, that their, their sort of feelings of gender identity don't match their physical anatomy. There's something, there's something real there in the sense that there's, a, there's an implicit recognition that our sexual identity is so fundamental to our self-understanding, right? And I think that that we can uh, we can recognize that, and we need to we need to start with that as a starting point, right? So the 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 danger in gender ideology is realizing that our sex is not God-given, and that our sex is not determinative in some way. But we can at least all recognize that sex, our sexual identity, is really important, um, and. And I think one of the insights of the, the theology of the body is recognizing that this goes exactly and directly to the core of our human identity. Can I add, this is a really important point, really important point. And I want to add just something here. John Paul talks about the fall in the Garden of Eden as creating a fundamental disquiet mm. that sort of goes through and permeates all of creation. He says, since the fall, there's a rupture between body and soul, our sexual integrity. And he says, um, there's this hotbed of resistance between the two. Mm. And those who are in these places in our culture today, we're, we're feeling that. Okay, it's, it's a brokenness, but there's still a beauty, and in, in we're longing for integrity. And I, I'll make a quick commercial here for a wonderful organization, two wonderful women who've in their own way have struggled with same-sex attraction and they, they found healing in the church. It's called Eden Invitation. Um, Connor, Patricia, I'm not familiar with Zach, you heard of it. Edeninvitation.com, I think. And it's a wonderful place to kind of, uh, to, for healing, there's retreats, there's reflections on theology of the body for those who are in gender dysphoria, um, who've experienced deep-seated same-sex attraction and trying to kind of find their home, you know, in their embodied life. So Eden Invitation is just a place to go. But, this fundamental disquiet, this, this hotbed of resistance, we all have it, right? We're all disordered since the fall. There's not a person that's disordered uh, uh, that is not, not disordered. We, we all feel it. We all sense it. And those who have it manifested so acutely in, in this realm need all the more compassion and sensitivity. And for us to listen to the pain first and then, you know, introduce this this beautiful fragrance of the gospel that comes through theology of the body but with real gentleness real gentleness and i'm glad you mentioned the fall because I, the the original question was about the creation narrative um and the, the early genesis narrative right so we understand how god made the world i i like thinking of i i forget who originally helped me see this this way but i like thinking of the 
um, the creation account in Genesis where God is creating all the various things of the world, ending, culminating with the creation of man on the sixth day before resting. I like to think of that as a liturgical procession, right? Um, and uh, then that really sort of sort of makes it vivid for me about what God is doing. And so man is the apex of God's creation there when God makes man in his image. And then God uh, makes, makes a woman to be the companion for man. So man and woman both made in God's image, but God does make them male and female. But then we have the fall narrative that really does tell us more about why things are the way they are, right? So we have sort of what was meant to be, and then we have this disordered uh, reality that introduces this fundamental disquiet. And I think that is a really important point, Bill, not just for understanding the situation of individuals who are in uh, unique situations uh, of genetic or physical abnormalities or um, genetic conditions like me. Like you said, all of us are disordered. All of us have bodies that are fallen. So we're all subject to age and decay and disorder, et cetera, et cetera, in various ways. But it also helps us just look at the world around us and understand why things are the way they are because this world around us is not the garden of Eden. We can say that much for sure. There are tons of people that are hurting. There are tons of people that are broken. And one of the, one of the uh, great things about the theology of the body is how it helps us recover some of that, which is not to say that we're going to overcome the consequences of the fall just because we learn to love each other and recognize that we're made for union, but it helps us live in the pattern of Christ. It helps us live according to the pattern that God originally established while we wait for the ultimate hope that we have in the resurrection and ultimate union with God. I guess I'll jump in just to say that I completely agree and I appreciate what both um, Zach and Bill have discussing. And I, I just reiterating the fact that um, compassion and sensitivity, regardless of what condition <laughs> um, or I guess, situation people are in, but continuing the message of looking at people as gifts and having that positive outlook and being selfless, I think just helps us, um, I guess, interact with, with creation, even in the fallen world in in the good way that we should be or in the in the way in which Christ has set the example and has called us to because he knows that we have that within us um, to be able to act in that way. There's something beautiful here. I mean, it's interesting we're jumping to, we're talking a bit about the brokenness and the, the fall as we're still in these first audiences on the creation. But it kind of makes sense because this is what we know, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We know this so well, so painfully well, and... John Paul has a beautiful line where he talks about, we know there's a, big, a good beginning, but sometimes we, we get the sense of it through the, the photographic negative, as it were, he says, by, by the, the hollow in the heart, by the ache and the pain and the wound. We're like, it was not always this way, right? And this is Jesus. In the beginning, it was not so. And that, that's sort of like sea breeze that comes and like, wow, that, 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 that wind from the Garden of Eden says, yeah, let me go. Let me go back because I know, I know, something's off. It's the fundamental disquiet, and this is a universal thing, right? Every every person on, in every place of every religion, philosophy, background, or none knows knows that there must have been a good beginning. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, whom I, I absolutely love, wrote a beautiful letter to one of his sons once, where he talks about the whole world is in a has a sense of permeated by a sense of exile. He says that there was a a very good Eden on this most unhappy earth. We all long for it. And, uh, you know, that, that's part of the gift of TOB. Like, go back, remember, listen to your experiences, listen to the ache in your heart. The ache is not bad. 
right? Don't try to fill it. F- sense that longing as a as the as the the Lord whispering to you and provoking you to say like, "Come home, come home." And the good beginning that John Paul reflects on in these initial audiences is the home, and the Lord will restore it. The Lord will bring us home again, not to Eden, but to a better than right. Oh, happy fault. Oh, Felix Kuba, oh, happy fault of Adam that brought so great a redeemer. When we get to heaven in this series, I mean, it's just going to be a basket case because it's so beautiful what the Lord is going to do with the broken bits of what we've done. Yeah, great, great points, Bill. And what you were saying there about the the Tolkien reference made me, um, made me think about the passage in Romans. I think it's chapter eight, where Paul says that all creation is groaning with, with pangs from childbirth, um, you know, as it, as, as it awaits the redemption. And, uh, and I think that's a really important thing. I also like what you said about how the, the fall is what we know, right? Like it's, it's really nice to talk about all the ways that God intended it to be, but then we look at the world around us. We look at ourselves. We, we, you know, take a look at our own hearts, our own minds. And we're like, this is not the way it should be right. I'm hurting. I'm broken. My marriage is not this way. My relationship with my parents is not this way. I have no friends. I mean, right. Like all of these things are, are very real realities for people. Um, and so, so I think we need to talk about the fall because it helps us understand why things are the way they are. But then we also need to look to our origin and to our destiny to recognize the way that things once were and the way that things were supposed to be and the way, and the way that things will be again. So thanks be to God that we have that hope in Jesus Christ. All right, we're going we're gonna to end it there because we are out of time. But thank you once again to each of you for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the next episode. We're going to dive into some things. We're going to talk more specifically about marriage, not exclusively about marriage, but we're going to talk about conjugal union and procreation and mutual self-realization, self-giving, and some of these really important ideas that John Paul II elucidates and highlights for those who are in marriage. And I think it will, will certainly have um, relevance for those who aren't even in marriage because... Uh, as Catholics, we need to support the institutions of marriage. We need to support those who are married because it's it's a very important uh, vocation, although it's not for everyone. Um, and then in the final episode, we'll talk more about some of these, these lofty ideas. I want to talk more about the ideas of destiny in the theology of the body. So I'm looking forward to our next discussions. But thank you, Bill. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, Patricia, for joining me today. To my listeners, if you have any questions for them, you can, as always, email me, Zach, Z-A-C, at Credo Catholic. Dot com, and I'd be happy to put you in touch. Bill also said I can share his email address directly. So that is B Donahy, that's spelled B D O N A G H Y at T O B Institute.org. So if you want to just reach out to, to Bill directly, go straight to the source and talk to him about some questions you have, feel free to reach out to him. Bill, Patricia, Connor, thank you so much for joining me for yet another episode. Thank you, Zach. This was a gift. Thank you. Thank you very much. And to my listeners, until next time, God bless you. Thank you.